You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Batman Adventures, uh, Batman the Animated Adventure would come on at like 3 o'clock uh, when I would get home from school, and it was just what I lived for. Like, I can get through school if I just can't wait for Batman the Adventure, the animated series, to come on at 5.30. And then uh, directly after that, um, Fox, the TV station, just let all heck break loose after 5 o'clock for the evening shows, and the first thing on the docket for a little while was Jerry Springer. Uh, have, you, have you ever seen Jerry Springer? Do you guys, am I talking to a group that knows? Okay, <laughs> We hear the chanting already. It's just like, it brings out like the worst of us, I guess, you know. And I remember just as an eight-year-old, like, watching this show, like, what is going on on this show? It's just amazing. You know, the whole premise was just like, they were, they were trying to get into a fight. Like, they were, like, if I turn on MMA and I'm going to see a cage fight, like, I, there's no pretense. Like, I know we're getting into a fight. But Jerry had a suit on, and he would have, like, normal everyday people. They had Starbucks drinks. They're sitting there. But he was trying to have a cage fight. Like, it was a cage fight without the cage. Like, that's pretty much, if you guys have ever seen it before, some of this stuff, it's a high cultural moment. If you're not from this country, you didn't see this, this is just our best we have to offer in America is this, you know. He would come out with his suit, and he would just have something like, you didn't know, but your sister, cousin, baby mom, like, had this thing, and now you're, she was cheating on you, and then there's the fight. And so then the bodyguards would come out. You guys remember the bodyguards? I wonder how much they paid these people. They were literal bodyguards. It tells you about a show, what the motive and intent here is when there's bodyguards in the show, and they would try to break it up, but not really, because that would like make the ratings go down. Uh, and so they would just get into these ugly fights. And it was ugly fighting, like ugly topics, and then ugly like fighting forms. Like it was just the ugliest, hair-pulling, scrappiest fights. Uh, and then the worst part, right? So the worst part of this whole show is what was the, <laughs> what was the crowd's reaction? They loved it, right? They loved it. It was like, it's like a train wreck. Like, I'm sitting there as a five, eight-year-old kid processing this, but I somehow hate it and can't take my eyes off at the same time. Like, it's something is, is going on. And so, you know, like, when, when we're reading, you know, cover to cover from the Bible, left to right, we're going through whole books of the Bible, left to right. We even did a whole series on Genesis. Like, when you go read Genesis, like, from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50, like, what you see on Jerry Springer is not too far off from what you see in the Bible. <laughs> like, like, believe it or not, the Bible and Jerry Springer actually align way more than you would think, right? Okay, and so, I mean, it's a sad, utter thing, but it's like, and it gets going early and often, you know, like, here's this garden, Eden's created, Adam and Eve, hid, uh, un- naked and un- unashamed, this intimacy and all this stuff, and, and so the humans don't, they trust themselves, they don't trust God, they take the fruit, they create their own version of wisdom and knowledge of good and evil, right, and for themselves, and at the moment they're divided from God, they're also divided from each other, that where there was naked and unashamed, now there's hidden in blame and projection, and so, Bible or not, Jerry Springer or not, we all as human beings feel, like, maybe not legally, but even spiritually when we get married, the pull of divorce within our marriage. The moment we get married, we start to feel the internal and external pressures of, of our marriage to make the marriage revolve around me, as opposed to Jesus, and the outcome of that. The Bible says that, you know, the family of God continues on, and, uh, and this guy Jacob, you know, comes out of this lineage of these 12 brothers where basically it starts off by one of the brothers trying to kill the other brother, puts him in a pit, and then has barbecue. Just like, I don't even care. Just puts Joseph in a pit as though he was dead and then has lunch over it. Like, what is the commentary, right, of the Bible? And then beyond that, Jacob goes on and he has two wives. He can't just have one wife. He's got to have two wives. And uh, starts this rivalry, and they're like having Jerry Springer moment in the field arguing over who's going to sleep with him. As if Jerry Springer came up with this, right? Like, Jerry Springer did not come up with this. Like, dysfunction, we did, right? Uh, it goes on, and 
the Eden, uh, the kingdom of, of, of God, which was created into Edom, becomes the kingdom of Adam. The kingdom of Adam is Babel, and it just gets built, built, built until the languages confuse themselves. And what do you get out of that? Just, just wars. You know, Kyra made this comment to the you know, it's like, I hear this word a lot, like meta and metaverse. It's really interesting in a place that's supposed to be the universe that our technology and our branding and our language is all going into the metaverse, like Spider-Man metaverse. Like we all have to have these alternate realities where the world revolves around us because I can't even afford to have a world that doesn't uniquely and dependently you know, revolve around me and the visor I have in my headset, right? So this is, the, this is the predicament that we're in, right? Is that it's not an accident. It's just not, it's just not like random. Like the world is given <clears throat> to division. It's an inevitable thing is the claim of the Bible and Jerry Springer, and they're both right, okay? So pay attention to this. We get into Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the vision of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, uh, many signs and wonders performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together. So I'm putting this up here as just a juxtaposition. Babel and the church. Just look at the differences, okay? Compare and contrast, real simple. Apples and oranges here. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property. They sold possessions. They gave to everyone that was in need. The world didn't revolve around them. It revolved around the Spirit of God and what the Spirit was doing. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread, right? Instead of relationship, they broke bread. And in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord, the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. I think what we're meant to see after reading all of the Bible, like the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament, and then confronting this vision for church, is to understand that what we've just read in Acts chapter 2 is not some strategy towards like communal living. It's a miracle. You're supposed to look at the stark, dark, black contrast of everything from Genesis all the way to Malachi and realize if it's not for the Spirit of God, we're not going to get along. Period. It's not only just like not plausible, it's not possible, right? So in, in sin, wherever sin is, what the Bible is claiming is that not only like is, is division inevitable, but that unity is impossible. It's not possible. And therefore, when we read Acts chapter 2, we're not just like, oh, I get it, Lord. So I'm just going to have more people over to my house, and we're going to eat more and just have a nice like, you know, communal moment. It's not going to be programmatized, and that's how we're going to get to unity. And, and we see Acts 2 as a strategy, but it's not a strategy. It's a miracle. It's supposed to be like, here's what could never have happened without the Spirit of God. So it's like, when you read things like, oh, they healed people and there was people saved and stuff, that's the part we categorize. That's the miracle part, right? Over here, this is just the kind of normal, nominal things that, you know, normal people do. And he's like, no, they're both miracles. The fact that you actually care that's about what else is going on, somebody's life, that's a miracle. That's not your nature, right? That's not Adam's nature. That's Jesus' nature in you. And so really Acts 2, 42 through 48, it's not like some of it is nominal and some of it's miracle. It's a miracle. Family is a miracle. Heaven's a miracle and family is a miracle. Unity is a miracle because this is, I think, pretty safe to say as a propositional truth, where sin has power, division is inevitable and unity is impossible. But where the spirit is present, division is impossible and unity is inevitable. Isn't that good news? It's good news that we have a future in heaven, but it's also good news that we have a future not alone a future in unity, a future in commonality where, where, where everything is in common, where no need is unmet, where we care more for our brother and sister than even ourselves because we see ourselves as one and not divided. Okay, so we've been, we've been trucking along and, you know, N.T. Wright has a great, like you don't just, you have to keep pedaling on the bike all the way from 1 through 16. Romans is a, is a bike ride and you can't just stop because if you slow down too far, you tip over because it's one straight line, right? And so there's a huge, Romans 12, we get the practical side of this book, huge therefore, I mean therefore, Bible students is the big, like, 
You always ask why the therefore is therefore, and this hinge of basically theology to practical is usually anchored on this therefore. It's the biggest therefore I can think of, right? And basically when he says in Romans 12, the therefore is the whole gospel. The therefore is not chapter 11, it's chapter 11, 10, 9. It's like, you're responsible. I, I trust that you read 1 through 11, and this is why the therefore is therefore, okay? So here's the whiteboard. This is a little bit of a, of a catch-up if you're just joining us here, okay? But this is Paul's uh, reasoning, is that everything to the left of this cross, okay, it represents uh, humanity under the power of sin. The, the, the Jerry Springer, kind of all that stuff that we talked about, the power of sin or division and sin, okay? And so picture it this way. So what happens is... Uh, the Bible's claim about sin is that if, if your body's a car, what it's saying is that you're in the passenger seat and you are a slave to the one that's driving your car. The Bible's claim of, of sin is that you don't just struggle with it or, you know, you kind of manage it. Like, it's saying everyone outside of the covenant of Christ and the Holy Spirit, that car is not being driven by you. That's the claim, right? And so the radical claim of the gospel is, here's this is that when the Spirit of God comes into a car, uh, not only does it take sin out of the car, its justification means it sees, sees the body, sees the person as the righteousness of Christ, also indwells the person with the righteousness of Christ, i.e. the Spirit of God. But here's the trick, here's the trick, is that actually when the Spirit comes in and the sin goes out, when it comes to the inner nature of a person, the Spirit doesn't stay in the driver's seat. It actually moves to the passenger seat and puts you in the driver's seat. The gift of the Spirit is self-control, which means you have choices now. You have options, okay? And so this is why Paul believes that unity is inevitable for the church, is because if I've been set free by the Spirit of God to live in the nature of Christ, then I've been set free from the legalism and lawlessness and self-centeredness of, of, of Adam, okay? And so what his logic is, is if I've been set free into the spirit and away from sin if there's been a switch of the occupancy of my car and if I've been set free from the nature of legalism and lawlessness and I've been set, set free towards the nature of Christ, which is love, then what other future outcome can there be for two people next to each other that have been set free into the spirit of love than unity? Unity is an inevitable future. That's an inevitable future. So, so, so there, there, if, 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 a, if a church is experiencing disunity, right, or if a family is experiencing disunity, they know that they're not, they can't be operating in the Trinity love. The Trinity love is let us. The Trinity love is self-submission, mutual submission. So if there's no unity, that means there's no love. If there's no love, that means there's no spirit. That's not the gospel. That's the spirit, right, is, is occupying the car and giving you opportunity to offer yourself towards this living sacrifice, right? So here's where I think Romans 12 gets personal for these Jewish people. The Jewish church, or excuse me, the Roman church, is 150 people soaking wet, viciously divided, by the diaspora of, of the empire of the Jews to be kicked out and then brought back in again. So they come into the room, right? And this is how it is. Like, it wasn't just like a sermon with a chapter a day. It would be like the lady, Phoebe, okay? That's her name. This is literally her name. This is, I'm just historical, you know, fiction, but probable that Phoebe comes in with this letter and reads it front to back, just reads it one through 16, no interruption, and just lets the spirit do what it's going to do, okay? And so I'm just thinking if I'm in that room, if I'm a Jew, I'm loving, uh, uh, Romans, Romans uh, 5. I'm loving Romans 5. Death to sin, you stupid Gentiles and Greeks. Y'all are out here, these pagan, you know, idol-worshiping things. You're eating all this pork. Y'all are losers. Boo, Gentiles. You know, like, I'm loving that. I'm, like, going crazy. I'm loving this, right? Right? But then he gets up into my business, and he's like, also, you didn't just die to sin. You died to the law. 
And so everybody thinks they're self-righteous. It's just as bad as somebody that's unrighteous. It gets a little awkward. You feel that, right? Then Phoebe comes over, and she goes to the other side of the room, and she, and she reads the whole thing about, you know, being cut off in the grafted olive tree, right? And so if I'm a Gentile, I'm like, yeah, y'all, there's no favorites. You guys are just punks out here in your Sabbath, you know, judgy, snooty, legalistic people. All y'all are crazy. And then he's like, hey, also, the sovereignty of God brought you in. It's their hard-hearted, you know, hard-heartedness that caused them to stumble, making you humble. You wouldn't be here without them. And so you don't have any claim on them either, right? So it's equal opportunity offenders, the gospel, right? Then he turns the corner, Phoebe, and she reads this thing about love. And she says things like this, and I'll just read it to you towards the end. She just starts reading, love must be sincere. Like, this is, like that word, legalism, lawlessness, but that word love comes to knock on the door pretty quick. Like, are you sincere in your love, or are you an actor and a hypocrite in your love towards the person? Like, are you real, though? Like, this is where it gets personal. Like, I can't politicize this thing. Hate what's evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. You see, it starts to get personal. It's not a theological, doctrinal seminary class. Oh, this was about my neighbor. Like, you brought this here because of the way I treat my mom or my dad. This is, this is, this is, and, and so I think the cheers and the jeers and the Ricky Lake of all this thing starts to become tears, contriteness. This is not about some theological position anymore. This is about the very real reality that sin is not my friend and death is my enemy and the power of the world and Satan in the flesh has conspired against us to divide a church that should be united. And the Spirit of God begins to speak. I think that's the spirit of, in the heart of this whole thing. Okay? And so I think this is where not only does it get from you know, uh, the- theological to practical for the Romans, I think it gets from, from practical and personal to prophetic for us. Because here's what I think. I think that out of all the three different sections of this book, the part that's going to nip us in the bud the quickest from, is 12 from 16, because if, if the gospel has come to confront and weep over the lawlessness of the Gentiles, and it's come to confront and weep over the legalism of the Jews, it's come to confront and weep over the rugged individualism of American church. It hates the rugged individualism of American church. So it's going to come into it, and it's like if we take this personal, like if it really is the Spirit of God towards us, it's going to say something like, hey, your body is not your property. Like, that's not what you were taught. Like, and I don't, I don't, I hate to say this, American culture will submit to the kingdom. And your body, like, get your hands up. That's not true. Your body belongs to God and therefore belongs to the church. And that is, like, like viscerally offensive to us. Do you feel that when I say that to you? Everything in your mind is going, no, that can't be true. Yes, it's true. Like, I think we, we don't get, like, offended at, like, justification of my faith. We're not a very aristocratic society. Like, we, like, the idea of everybody gets in, we get that. We're all about that. The idea of, like, change and transformation, like, yeah, amen, brother, we're, we're going to be better tomorrow because we live in a society that believes that a better future is ahead of us. But when it comes to self-denial and unity, <laughs> that's the part where we're out. And it's not optional. It's not a buffet. The gospel is saved, changed, and unified. Take it or leave it. That's it. It's going to get to chapter 13. It's going to say, hey, you know, um, like the president you don't like? I wrote this letter at a time when Caesar was just killing kids, and I told him to submit to the government. Not my government. That's not my president. Nuh-uh. It gets in our business. You feel that? And then he's going to say, like, hey, if this is one family, then that missionary you didn't meet, that's not your money. It's their money if this is one family, right? So you can't pick and choose which, and so this is where it gets prophetic. 
the gospel has not come. And I could seriously just say this, like to our room. I, I think I would feel enough legitimacy to say this. The gospel does not save us for the American dream, but from it. The gospel has come to save us from the American dream. The gospel has not come to save us from big government, big business, a life of mediocrity, poverty, material poverty, voicelessness or powerlessness. That's not, that's not what this is. It's come to save us from sin. The world, the flesh, the devil, that's the enemy. And so therefore it has not saved us for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you hear the Spirit in the world talking? Because the Spirit's only saying one thing. It's not saying saved for the American dream. It's saved for the Holy Spirit. That we belong to one another, and that saved is to be changed, and to be changed is to be unified, and therefore the gospel is all or none. Saved, changed, and unified through faith in the gospel. That's the gospel. So here we are in Romans 12. Therefore, he says, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Where's, is Darrell here? Where's Darrell at? Okay, Darrell, Darrell's a word guy, okay? Darrell is an incredible poet. And, and Darrell's job, I know, just working on words a lot myself, is to find great words. Like, if you could find a great word, you don't even need the emotion. It's just say the word. And this, it's just, let's just think about this. Living sacrifice. Like, is that just not a word? I used to have a person at a more charismatic church that'd be preaching. They'd say, brother, that's a word. And I was like, well, I'm saying lots of words. Like, which one was it? You know, this is the one. Living sacrifice. I mean, I'm not a tattoo guy. I could get down with that. Living sacrifice, that thing has some heat on it. Living sacrifice. Because it has, that iron, it has irony, it has paradox. Do you feel that? Living, but it's a sacrifice, right? So it's poetic, but it's also, it's also practical, okay? Because think about it. Um, I was eating dinner one time with Justin, who did the reading earlier, and uh, Justin has a sister named Jeanette. And, um, and so every time he gets frustrated at Jeanette, he calls her Janet. Is that a true story? Janet. Janet. And how does she like? Does she like that? She loves. She loves it. It's like just Jerry Springer. So, can I get my Charlie chart? Here's the claim: I'm the righteousness of Christ, but yet I still sin. Am I yin and a yang? Am I a big dog, bad bad dog? Like, what's the deal? You are 100% if you're in Christ, the righteousness of Christ. You live in an earth suit that has magnets attracted to the world, and it's used to the nature and nurture of how you were born, but internally your present and your past and your future is only, without mitigation, the righteousness of Christ. But you got a body, okay? And, and so this is going to sound weird coming from a preacher, but when I was going over this chart, I went through this thing in my head where I thought about, not like I didn't commit to it, but I thought about starting to call my body Janet. So it's like, because this is, I'm just saying, just as an illustration, like this is truly what he's saying. You're the operator of the motor vehicle. You used to be a slave to your sin nature, but you're not anymore. You don't have to be. That's the claim. And so you could say to your body, if you want to, you can name it Morgan or Phil or Rich. You can just say, Janet, I don't need another donut right now. Like, I don't need that, <laughs> right? That's the old nature. The old nature says you have to listen to your, because you are your body, but you're not your body. He's saying, Christ is saying that you have an inner man, a spirit inside of you, that is the righteousness of Christ, wants to do God's will, 
delights in God's law and wants to do God. So your spirit used to get told by your body what to do. Now your spirit tells your body what to do. You're driving the car. And you say, Janet, like, I'm not here to pursue my own, you know, interest and my own popularity. I'm here to lift up the righteous Christ. Any number of things, you can tell Janet what to do. That's my point. And so here's what Paul does. He, he, he has this moment where he puts his arm around the church, this urge, you brothers. It's like a, it implicates an imploring of people. He says, what if we do this thing where because we're free and the Spirit has given us self-control to make our own decisions, what if we weren't obligated? What if instead we offered ourselves as a living sacrifice to God? That's what he says. So, uh, you know, Mother's Day, where are we at? Father's Day, birthdays, you know, you're in the line, you have to go to the party, you buy the Amazon card at the checkout line on the way to the party, you put the gift in the card and you give it to them, right? This, this is gifts, right? Gifts, right? I, if you really think about it, if a gift is, is just no strings, no obligation, no, no owing, probably gifts gets given to you in a day that, you know, like, it wasn't obligated to do so, I've probably only received, like, three gifts in my life. How many gifts have you received? Like, you really thought about non-obligated, non-owed, offered gifts. Uh, this one time my dad came into town, he just bought me a guitar. He just decided to get, it was like $1,800, $1, bought me a Taylor guitar. This other time, Kelton Cox. If you guys know Kelton Cox, I mean, it literally took me, think about this. My head was spinning for probably two days. He sent me a pair of like LeBron James shoes just like in the mail. They were like $150 and he just sent them to me. And for, two, and for like two days, I was like, I couldn't understand. You know, like this is where we live. I could not understand. Like I can barely get to a Publix line and remember to get some flowers for people like the dude decided to click on an Amazon thing and buy me $150 shoes for no good reason at all, just to be nice. So what's a gift? Like, what's a gift really, if you define it that way? A gift is meaning, I'm not giving it to you because I'm guilty or because I'm obligated or because I'm showing up to your party or because it's going to look bad if I don't give you a gift. It's just because I want you to be happy. That's what a gift is. So why is the word offered used? Because nothing is in the gospel, right? If you think about this idea of the spirit coming into your passenger seat and you having self-control then the language becomes the Spirit's not going to reach over and drive your car into worship. He's inviting you to offer it because a gift can't be given out of obligation. It has to be given out of the offering. So he's saying, what if you, what if you decided to? I died 2,000 years ago. Nobody got to come to my funeral because I died in Christ. The tomb that my body goes in marks off a dash of where my anatomy goes until it's given to a new body into the new age. But for now, until then, I've already died the only death I'm going to die and I'm going to live an uninterrupted life from here on out. And so now I just have Janet. What am I going to do with Janet? He's saying, I got an idea. I got an idea. You don't need your body. You're going to live forever. Your body doesn't measure your life. Why don't you give your body to God? That's the opportunity. It's not obligation. It's not guilt. He's never going to come over and bash you over the head and make it happen. But he gives you permission to offer it freely. So what he's saying is you have an opportunity. And I mean, somebody I was speaking with, I can't, can't remember, but had somebody pass away even today. We were at Denny's talking about the young, the middle-aged, the old, dying sometimes with a poetic narrative and sometimes dying just out of cruelty, just out of like, why, why are we here? Why is this happening? And the vapor that comes out of that, the meaninglessness you know, that, that, that Ecclesiastes is talking about. And Paul's speaking to us in the gospel. He's saying, this is the meaning. This is the meaning. Whatever days or months or years that you have measured off, what if you offered it to God? This is the idea. What if you pictured your casket and, and you saw all the people in the flowers and the people that were gathering around it and the measurement of the days? How many years that is? I don't know how many years that is. And what if you just said, I have a decision from here until there. I do have a choice to drive the car how I want to drive it. What if I made that casket 
a Christmas present for Jesus? What would it look like for my days, my months, my years to say, I don't have to give this because otherwise it would be a gift, right? It'd be a payment. But I choose to give it because now it's a gift. What does it look like? And he's putting his arm around this church and he's saying, this is your choice. You don't have to do it. He's never going to come out of the sky and hit you with a lightning bolt and corral you into it. This is just your opportunity to do with your body, right, what Jesus did with his, to offer it as a living sacrifice, okay? So now here's where it gets real interesting. Verse, verse 3, he says, uh, for the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves as more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with faith. But God has distributed each of you for just as each of us is one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same functions, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with faith, then faith. Um, if it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouragement, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. And if it's to lead, then lead diligently. And uh, if it's to show mercy, then do it, do it cheerfully. So here's the big plot twist. You ready? So he... He pulls the church aside. You don't, you got it. You, Janet, Janet's up for hire. Janet can do, you can do with Janet whatever you want. It's your choice. You could offer it to God as a living sacrifice. This is your choice. Now, here's the trick, though. So, Texas language at the beginning of this passage when it says, therefore, in view of God, God's mercy, offer your bodies. That's the part of the sentence that if you were in Texas, you'd say, y'all. Okay? So, that's what he's saying in Romans 12. If you've got mercy, all y'all. You ever been to Texas when they say, what does that mean? Y'all, which means like the group, but then all y'all, which means like the group together. Let's all y'all sing. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. I'm not from Texas, but that's the idea. All y'all, okay? Now pay attention. The, the, this is important. The language, it's intentional, is that the format of that, uh, that word is plural, but guess what the format of the living sacrifice word is? Singular. So, so if you read it through, Texas or not, it's in view of the gospel. I mean, right off the bat, he's going, it's not like, well, maybe some of you guys do this. or maybe It's like, in the view of the gospel, offer yourselves in the living sacrifice. And so what he says is, it's like all of us are going to make a decision to offer one gift. That's a big deal. You see that? Right? Because what it's saying is, he's saying what we're going to do for Christ is we're going to offer a group gift. You ever had somebody call you and say, hey, we're going to get dad a set of golf clubs, but we can't afford it all, so what are we going to do? We're all pitching. And I get a little bit nervous because I want the credit. I don't want, you know, Thomas getting the credit because, you know, dad loves Thomas and he's going to get the It's like, that's not what's up for Christ. Dad doesn't want a tennis racket. He wants golf clubs. And so we can't just decide what dad wants. We're going to give him what he wants, which is an all-y'all gift. So this is the deal. It's not like, so the gift, for example, for me, if I'm up here talking every Sunday, the gift can't be for me to walk away and say like, Glad I talked today, right? The question now has to be, is a unified gift means, did, did my gift talk in such a way that got you to give your gift? Because if not, it's a loss. My gift, so that you can give your gift, so that we can give dad some golf clubs, so that we can give one living sacrifice. You see that? That's a huge deal, right? Okay? And so, uh, and so this, is, this is what God wants. God's gift, I mean, Jesus says it on his last day on earth when he prays, he doesn't want golf clubs. He doesn't want more songs. He doesn't want more sermons. He doesn't want more books. You know what he wants? He wants a unified church. That's what he wants. And we are being called to give in such a way that we give all y'all's body a many-manifold-bodied gift for one offering, 
One living sacrifice. That's what we're giving, okay? And so we're not sitting here wondering, I wonder what God wants in my life. He already told you, right? The whole like renewing of the transforming the mind. Some of us, it's like, okay, I'm gonna go into my quiet time and then ask God what he wants. It's like, well, he already told you what he wanted. He wants a unified church. So there's no escape. He's just A, right to B. Like, boop, he wants a unified church. So what are you doing, right, in the name of either prohibiting or promoting the unity of the church with your gifts? That, that has to be read in one bike ride. It can't be like, oh, I'll just take this part of it. That's God's will, to be in a church, to serve a church, to lift up like the members of the church as one body because the gospel is not just salvation or sanctification, it's unification. And so it's like, yeah, there's seven gifts lifted and we could do little sermons on what does it mean to be a prophet or what does it mean to be a servant or what does it mean to be a teacher. I don't think that's the point though, right? The point is not an exhaustive list to find self-actualization in some kind of personality test. It's saying what? Whatever you're good at, just give it to God. That's what it's saying. Give it in faith because here's the thing. You have that little GoFundMe account, right, for the group gift. And how many guys think, because I think about this, right, I'm not, if, the, if it's like for $10,000 to send this person to Africa on vacation or whatever, right? Like, I'm not, and, and there's $10 in the bucket, I'm probably not going to give, or I'm less likely to give, because I don't really feel like this person's going to get the plane ticket, right? And the other part of it, this is me just being honest with you, I'm not saying it's right, right? <laughs> but if it's 90% full, I'm also less likely to give because I feel like, eh, they've already got it covered. I want it right in the middle, and he's saying, you're not going to give it based on works or what works. You're going to give it based on faith and what God has done. You're going to give the best of you to the church because that's what God wants. That's it. And that is just as legitimate as do I believe Jesus for salvation? That's the same, it's the same question. There's no such thing as vertical without horizontal offerings. So here's a question. Paul said it, not me. Okay, this is going to sound very self-serving. But this is what the Bible says. I'm just going to say it, right? This is the question I think Paul would be asking us. Do you offer your best to God's church? The alternative option would be leftovers, right? Do I give my leftovers to God's church or my best to God's church? It's a fair question. When you, if you had to go get a job tomorrow, let's say you have a job and you lost it or you never, you don't have a job, but all of a sudden you don't have the means to feed yourself, you would go on monster.com, and you go on an interview and make a resume. You start making a resume. That's step one. And you would list on it the things that you're good at. <laughs> you would not list the things that you're bad at. You wouldn't list all the, you know, you're distracted easily, or you don't prioritize well, or you're not punctual. You wouldn't put that, right? You wouldn't put your worst things. You'd put your best things. And Romans 12 is saying, how can you give that to the church? And will the church give what's supposed to be given in faith for profit instead? That would be the tragedy, Right? So that's a simple question. I know it sounds very self-serving as a pastor of church, but this is what it's saying. Either for your brothers, your sisters, your small group. I mean, I'm not just saying for citylights.com. I'm saying for the church, the brothers and sisters, the big C church, right? But also, it is also relevant to what goes on in here, right? Do I offer the best of me or the worst of me to the church? Do I give because, ah, that's just going to be a waste, and nobody's going to really appreciate that gift anyways, and nobody really notices it, and so ah, it's not really worth it. I'm just going to hold back I'm saying you're giving it not based on what works, you're giving it based on what's faith. Is God creating in us a new nature of love which can only go from Jerry Springer to unity? Is he doing that or not? Your faith in that, no matter how big the bar is, is all that's encouraged. Is it really going to matter in the end? I mean, it's only one person. I'm just like going to give financial advice. I do, you know, brokerage firms for such and such and I have this amount of money in my bank. I'm only give advice to one person? Yeah, if it's faith. That's what's, that's what's encouraged. That's what's, that's what's needed. And so this is how the church is getting built up because if it's not built on faith, 
I'll tell you, and you've been here before, it's going to get built on momentum and ego and positions and jockeying and emotionalism. That's, you know, so it's like, what do you want it to be built on? He says, how about we build it on faith? How about you and me get dad a present that he asked for, not the one he didn't ask for, and how about we give all y'all's body as one sacrifice in or out? This is the gospel, right? This is what he's saying. Okay, so then he really hits the plane, and this is where it gets personal. This is where it gets prophetic. Phoebe would have read this in a room of 120 people. This is how much the Spirit of God cares, even about 120 people in the middle of Rome. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope and patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. You notice how everything's very imperative. It's very do. Before, it was all about the true. This is what's true. This is what's true. This is what's true. Then he's just, I mean, he went in M&M mode with you. He just... Palms are sweaty, knees. I mean, he just went straight for all the things we should be doing. Y'all sick of thinking about stuff? Here's some things to do. Let's do it. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people those who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, here, I just want you to notice uh, a few things. I mean, first and foremost, just the vision, the picture. It's not a list. It's a picture. He's painting a picture, and it's the world does, um, I'm coming to be over you. And Christ says, I'm coming under you, right? The other theme you're going to see is the world comes against people. I'm against you. I'm not for you. It's like, I'm not for you. You're not for me. I'm not for you. He's saying, no, that's not what the Spirit. Spirit comes for people. Uh, world comes on what works. You know, the kingdom comes on, on faith, right? Okay. Now, watch these two bookends here. In verse, in verse, uh, in verse 9, love must be sincere, says Paul. And, and, and notice this. He goes straight into the second phrase, which is, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Which is funny to me because you would think that if the thesis of the paragraph is going to be, hey, go love people, the next sentence is going to be, you know, be nice to them and put up with their stuff. And it's saying, you know what's really loving? Be righteous. That's loving. Like, if I am having a relationship with you that has love in it but excludes truth, then it's failed to be love. And then goes on and look at the very, so he hits him with the Eminem with the whole freestyle right here, and then gives you verse 21, and so then the sandwich of the very bottom, look how he closes it, do not be overcome with what? Evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is the biblical mindset that we have to get, and I think this is where we get tripped up in rugged individualism, is that we have these two false categories of I can be loving, but I don't have to be good. And the Bible's saying that's not possible. There is no category in the Bible that says you can be good at loving, but bad at being truthful. Not possible. And also, on the other side, it's saying, if you actually care about being good and righteous, you know what fulfills the law? Love does. There's no such thing as a piety and a purity that doesn't think about their neighbor that's actually righteousness. That's not righteousness. So to be good is to be loving, and to be loving is to be good. And that is a huge frame for us because this whole thing has been the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ in you. You have been become a slave to righteousness. You know, like, uh, you've been justified by Christ, and now have Christ's righteousness. Like, we have to understand that that righteousness is, of course, leading to the highest law, which is what does it mean to be righteous? It's to love God and love neighbor. That's what righteousness is. So anytime it's saying you have the righteousness of Christ in you, what it's really saying is you have perfect love bubbling up inside you. And there's no category in my head that says I'm good without being loving or loving without being good, okay? And so this is how we could see how gospel unification is an inevitable future for people that are made into the righteousness of Christ because the righteousness of Christ is the love of neighbor, there's no possible way to be righteous without loving your neighbor. So here's the thing. So look at Matthew 22. They went to Jesus one time. Watch this little switcheroo about plural and singular. They asked Jesus, what's, your, what's the greatest command? 
Look at the, look at the end of that, that word and command in verse 36 of, of, of chapter 22. Hey, hey, teacher, which is the greatest command? How many commands did the guy ask for? One. Now watch, in the law, Jesus replies. This is Jesus' response to the guy. He's not dumb. He heard the question. The guy asked for the greatest command. What does Jesus give him? He gives him two. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and the greatest command. He says, in the second, it's like it. And to him, it's just one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So let me ask you a question. If I, before you today, take in a deep breath, I say, but I don't exhale, did I really take a breath? Right? No. I wouldn't categorize that breath. Can somebody that is breathing in oxygen but not exhaling CO2, does that count as a breath? No. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying to love God in your pickup truck with a worship song on the beach and not go feed the poor, it's not, it's not love. That's not love. That's not righteousness. It's not two separate steps. If I, if I say, hey, I'm about to take, I'm going to walk. Okay, I'm going to do some walking. Y'all tell me, give me a grade. Am I walking or not? If I take my right foot and I go like this, but my left foot doesn't move, can we qualify that as a walk? That's not a walk. Necessarily, a walk has to be with two feet, where one after the other, that both of those things in tandem are working together to make love. Otherwise, it's not love. So loving God without loving neighbor is not love. That's why he says you have to leave your gift to the altar to go love your neighbor, because there's no such thing as worship in my pickup truck without my neighbor. It's not possible, right? And this is where it hits us smack dab in the face as Americans, right? Because we've been taught, like, here's what you do, Johnny. Like, here's how you love God. First, you got God, and then you got your family, and then you got work, and then you got your church, right? You have this, like, truncated, divided list of things that if you do this well, then you'll do this and then this. And, and, and then you get into it and you're like, but like, how am I supposed to really love my family without being with God doing it? Is that any good? And like when I'm working, aren't I like getting food for my table, which is really, isn't the motive for loving my family anyways, the same thing, right? So what he's saying is that it's not 16 steps, it's one command. This is the righteousness of Christ, to love and, and to love your neighbor. And so then it's not love God and then love neighbor or love God or love neighbor, it's love God by loving neighbor and love neighbor by loving God. That's the righteousness of Christ that has come inside of you. And so here's, I think, the format. Again, it's not a list. I think it's a picture. And I'm just going to read the list straight through. And I gave you a couple themes to think about. But here's why God thinks that unity is inevitable for the church. Because the Spirit of God can only cause the bodies within the body of Christ to give themselves in self-sacrificing love towards one another. That's inevitable reality. And so therefore... It's like saying, with the Spirit of God inside of me, not only is it predestined that I'm going to find Jesus, it's also predestined that I'm going to find you, that I'm going to know you. That's what the Spirit of God has come to do. And so unity is inevitable for the church because the nature of Christ is in me, which is love. That's the nature of Christ. That's the greatest command. So, verse 14. Actually, let me just start from the beginning. And I want you to just picture in this church, not in the church that Phoebe's at, that somebody comes up, just like me, and reads this passage. And Paul is so confident that what is in this room is so not like what is in Babel that without laws, commands, regulations, or consequences, he can read this list over you today, and the Spirit of God will highlight different words in this list to you that will cause you to repent and turn towards sincere love. This is, this is the vision. This is what he actually believes is going to be happening. Why is it that the very first lesson that Paul wants to give us outside, the, outside of the gospel, the therefore is just talking about gifts. Because what is the vision of gifts except for the value of love? 
He wants to talk about gifts because the nature of the spirit inside of you is love. And the gospel does not just come to save, not just to change, but to unite. And so this is where the spirit of God might, might work in us today, for example. Okay? This is, Paul's confident in this, that the spirit speaking to you as you drive your car. The spirit would say to you, love, it can't be just a nice smile. Like, you actually have to have the heart of God in you, which is a miracle. And it bears with all things, you know, so that it can actually revolve around Jesus and not our ego. And so the Spirit says, to be loving is to hate evil because it hurts and kills and destroys. I mean, gossip, cancer does, but so does gossip. So cling to what is good. This is what the Spirit says to you as you drive your car. Be devoted to one another. Not divided. Honor one another above yourself. Never lack in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people, those who are in need. Practice hospitality. Did the Spirit just speak to us a tone that says that love is easy? That there's no opposition? That there's no need for faith? No, we wouldn't need faith if this was easy. But this is the part, right? Be joyful in hope and patient affliction, faithful in prayer. Verse 14, and not only for family. Watch how he just intermittently just moves between family and enemy. To him, love seems no distinction between family and enemy. Love is a, is a sincere resource that outflows equally to both family and enemy. So he has no line. Yeah, church people treat church people this way and treat enemies. This, it's the same thing. The nature of Christ deals the same way. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Is there a name in your mind? Is there a story, an unanswered thing? Is there a gift that needs to be laid at the altar to go handle it with a brother? Like, that's the spirit of God in you. Don't repay evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone and do not take revenge. My dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, and I will repay. There's the faith. I mean, you might give your gift, and they might reject you. But there's no such thing as love minus rejection. So that's your choice, to not love without rejection or to love with it. The Spirit of God says to do the latter. That in faith, you give towards the GoFundMe without anybody else giving. You just give because it's wasteful, because you're not going to get recognized, because you're going to get smacked in the face. You give anyways because it's out of faith, not works. It's my to avenge. I'm over this. I'm over the church. It's not your church. This is my church. I'll take care of it. I'll repay, says the Lord. And on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will be heaping coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so just a final question to consider. Um, the Spirit of God might speak to you. is just how might I offer my life? Like he's saying... Your funeral has already happened. So your body, which used to be an instrument of wickedness, has now become government issue to the kingdom of heaven. And you have a decision, an opportunity, that God is never going to climb out of heaven and twist your arm over. He's never going to obligate you something he wants you to offer as a gift. So it's your choice. It's an opportunity, the years you have left, to keep for yourself or to offer as a gift. And that's the question. I think the Spirit would say to us, and just give us the opportunity to walk away. How might I offer my life as a living sacrifice to family and enemy? And so we were driving in the car, like I said, you know, me and Kyra on the, on the road trip. 17 years, y'all. 
came up with 17 songs of like really outdated, cheesy, just basic, you know, love songs. Uh, and loved it. Loved every minute of it. And, um, and uh, there's been a lot that goes on in those car trips when we drive to Indiana and Ohio and to the Pottery Barn Outlet and all those things. And I love what Kyra said uh, when we did a series on like gospel marriage one time. You know, she said, after these, whatever, 16 years or 15 years, it's really impressed on me that, you know, God gives us marriage as an opportunity. At the end of the day, like, your spouse can't twist your arm to actually love them. And that's pretty hard for your spouse. And you can't twist your spouse. I mean, you can get them to change their behavior and pick up the towels a little bit. But at the end of the day, like, does it really work? No, because it can't be obligated. The person has to just choose to offer. And many people don't choose to offer. They live their life to orbit themselves, and they want Kyra to live on planet Oliver, and it all should revolve around me. And he's going, that's your choice. And that would be a sad reality, right, to write your story in marriage. But you do have a choice. You could offer it. You could just offer it, and it could be in faith. And it doesn't have to do with whether or not it's going to string them or get them to do what you want them to do or make you happy. It's their happiness becomes your happiness. And that's the end of the day. What the gospel has come to do inside of us is for us to learn to make God happy. And by doing that, serve one another and honor other, other above ourselves. And so I remember one of our first, I think it was anniversary or something, I was trying to, um, I was trying to get Kyra to get me a, a juicer for, uh, for my birthday or something like that. And this was before, there's tons of bevel, whatever, juicers that Bed Bath & Beyond. And there's miscommunication. Any of you guys miscommunicate in marriage? It's awesome. And, um, and she just kept going, oh, you mean a smoothie maker? And I was like, no, I want a juicer. You know, I think it like takes the pulp out of it. No, she's like, no, I know. You want a smoothie maker. And so um, anyways, she kept, we kept getting smoothie makers and it doesn't work because the little carrots are all strung up in there and, and uh, it doesn't work. Smoothie makers cannot make juice. And so recently I did purchase Kyra a smoothie maker for Christmas and just crossed out the part that said smoothie maker and said, or juicer and said smoothie maker on it because I don't hold grudges and I'm really good at that and forgiving. So it's awesome. But look, I mean, when it says transformed by the renewing of your mind, this is the point of the gospel. He doesn't tell you to go take a quiet time to go figure out what God wants. He already told you what he wants. He wants a unified church. He doesn't want golf clubs. And so it might be more painful for you. It might be annoying. You know, I just, I'll, let me call some out. So uh, I don't know what happened, but there's been this weird trend in our church, and it's awesome, where it's like, just like, just, just strong leadership, like good guys are serving in kids' ministry. I don't know if you've ever been to kids' ministry. There's not a lot of, like, 20-year-old guys. On, and you know what? I mean, kids love adults that serve and pour into them. You know what they really love? Male figures. Okay? So I don't know who to give credit to if it's John or Sam. Like, one of them did it. And all of a sudden, isn't it funny how generosity becomes contagious? Like, faith becomes contagious. Like, somebody probably had to just say, I'm just going to sacrifice my day. I mean, a lot of these guys have kids. I mean, John's over here. He teaches all week, and he's got to go downstairs with these kids. We don't have any of going to show up. And he doesn't even know if it's going to have an impact or people are going to receive the Lord. It seems to me from the outside, and he just wants his casket to be a Christmas present for Jesus. He wants his life to be a gift. And it's not about whether or not it works or not. It's whether or not it has faith or not. And he's deciding, and it becomes contagious. And then, watch this, what would happen if five and six and seven, all of us decided to give our gift, not because we're coerced or because the pastor calls and gives a guilt trip, but because we have faith. And now it's not built on gift or ego or positions or brand or popularity or momentum. It's built on the secret place. It's built on, you see this, and this makes you happy, and I'm giving this. And that's, at the end of the day, what he's saying is unity is built off of salvation, sanctification, unity is all built on the same thing. It's built on a faith. What does it look like for us, not just you, for my gift to give to your gift so that your gift can give to our gift, and we could give a great gift of a living sacrifice to Christ? That's what I think Romans 12 is saying. 
And unity is inevitable on the other side of life. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 